Welcome to my podcast. Podtunes is the perfect way to fall asleep while listening to the best horror, history, and true crime stories. This podcast is presented by Bed Temporis, bedtime stories that will keep you up at night. If you want to hear your story featured on my podcast, email me at mypodtune at gmail.com. That's spelled M-Y-P-O-D-T-U-N-E at gmail.com. This episode includes discussions of murder, child death, and overdose. Listener discretion is advised. Let's begin. I solemnly pledge myself before God and in the presence of this assembly to pass my life in purity and to practice my profession faithfully. I will abstain from whatever is deleterious and mischievous and will not knowingly take or administer any harmful drug. This pledge is a token of esteem of modern nursing. This oath has been broken by Richard Angelo and Harold Shipman, along with many other caregivers in the medical field. This episode will cover two murders disguised in scrubs, also known as the Angels of Death. Richard Angelo and Harold Shipman, who killed hundreds of patients, these are their stories. Richard Angelo and his series of experimental killings involved injecting his patients with a lethal concoction to save them from the damage he created. Here is a direct quote from him. I wanted to create a situation where I would cause the patient to have some sort of respiratory distress or some problem, and through my intervention or suggested intervention or whatever, come out looking like I knew what I was doing. I had no confidence in myself. I felt very inadequate. Essentially, the murders he committed were designed to inflate Richard's ego, to prove that he was capable of saving people, in which he failed. Richard Angelo was born on August 29, 1962, in the state of New York. Richard was an only child of Joseph and Alice Angelo, with occupations in the education system. Neighbors would describe the Angelos as a kind, reserved family with nothing remarkable or out of the ordinary happening in his childhood. In his teenage years, Richard was an Eagle Scout. He graduated from St. John the Baptist Catholic High School in 1980 and signed up to be a volunteer fireman, hoping to gain the praises of other people. All he wanted was to be seen as a hero, a deadly mentality that would cost the lives of many people. Shortly after graduating high school, he entered the State University at Stony Brook in the same year of 1980, where he took several science courses. In 1982, Richard entered a two-year nursing program at Farmingdale State College, where he was a well-regarded student making the dean's honor list all four semesters. In 1985, he graduated and became a registered nurse in the burn unit at the Nassau County Medical Center in East Meadow. Only a year after he took the job, he saw a new opportunity at Brunswick Hospital in Long Island. He left that position to move to Florida with his parents, but returned to Long Island alone. Three months later, he began working at Good Samaritan Hospital. Even with the multiple moves and many accomplishments, he was still not satisfied with the well-established relationships he had built at work and at home. He was seen as highly competent and his calm demeanor made him perfect to be under the position of high stress. Working the graveyard shift in an intensive care unit, he wanted to be seen as godlike. Richard devised a plan that would surely let him achieve the validation he so desperately craved. Having access to a variety of medications, Richard decided to make a deadly concoction to bring his patients to a near-death state. 
After injecting the patients with the unprescribed drugs, placing them in a dangerous state, he would then revive them, proving his expertise and medical capabilities to his fellow staff. Once the plan was in place, it was time to put it to action. His first victim was John Fisher in April of 1987. So confident in his capabilities, he injected Fisher with a deadly mix and attempted to revive the man. He failed miserably. Unfazed by death, Richard attempted to revive his patients over and over again, failing more than he succeeded. Only 12 out of 37 patients he injected survived. After a month of killing and attempts to revive, Richard had a patient by the name of Garolamo Kusic. After poisoning Kusic, his patient was able to hit the call button moments before going into cardiac arrest. Richard fled the scene as nurses rushed to his assistance. His life was saved and he was able to provide a physical description of Richard. The authorities searched Richard's apartment and locker at the hospital, finding vials of the same drugs that were in Garolamo Kusic's system. Richard was arrested with multiple counts of second-degree murder. During the trial, two psychologists testified that he had dissociative identity disorder, a type of mental disorder in which a person displays multiple personalities, all distinct. The disorder left him unaware of what he was doing since he had been in a different personality when he poisoned his victims. However, two mental health experts countered that while Angelo suffered from a personality disorder, it was not a dissociative identity disorder, and therefore he knew what he was doing during the murders. In the end, Angelo was convicted of two counts of second-degree murder, one count of second-degree manslaughter, one count of criminally negligent homicide and six counts of assault, sentencing him to 61 years to life in prison. He is still incarcerated for his crimes. Harold Shipman was born the middle child on January 14, 1946, in Manchester, England, into a working-class family. Harold was the favorite child of his authoritarian mother, Vera. Harold was an accomplished rugby player in the youth leagues. Although he was involved in team sports, his mother ingrained a superiority complex that later impacted his relationships, leaving him as an isolated adolescent with few friends. Harold passed his 11-plus test, which is a test to move on to secondary school. In 1957, moving to High Pavement Grammar School, Nottingham, which he left in 1964. He shined as a distance runner, and in his final year of school, he served as a vice captain of the athletics team. When Harold was 17, his mother Vera died of lung cancer. In the latter stages of her disease, she had morphine injected by an at-home doctor. Harold watched as his mother's pain subsided. She passed away on the 21st of June in 1963. In November of 1966, Harold got married to Primrose May Oxtoby, and the couple ultimately had four children, Four years later, Harold graduated from the University of Leeds, where he studied medicine. He began working at the Pontefract General Infirmary, located in West Riding of Yorkshire, and in 1974, he took his first position as a general practitioner at the Abraham Omered Medical Center. Just a year later, Harold Shipman was in trouble with the law for forging prescriptions of pethidine for his own use. He was fined 600 pounds and briefly attended a rehab clinic in York. Afterwards, he became a general practitioner at the Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde, near Manchester in 1977. Harold continued working as a general practitioner throughout the 80s and eventually established his own surgery unit. 
becoming one of the most respected members of the community. In 1983, he was interviewed in an edition of the Granada television documentary, World in Action, on how the mentally ill should be treated in the community. In March of 1998, Linda Reynolds of the Brook Surgery in Hyde expressed concerns to John Pollard, the coroner of the South Manchester District, regarding the large number of deaths among Harold's patients. Specifically, she was alarmed by the amount of cremation forms for elderly women that Harold needed countersigned. The authorities were contacted but unfortunately unable to do anything due to a lack of sufficient evidence to bring charges and close the investigation on April 17th. Once the investigation was closed, Shipman killed three more people. In August, a taxi driver by the name of John Shaw told police that he suspected Shipman of murdering 21 patients. Shaw became suspicious as many of the elderly customers he took to the hospital, who seemed to be in good health, died in Shipman's care. Shipman's last victim was Kathleen Grundy, who was found dead at her home on the 24th of June, 1998. He was the last person to see her alive. He later signed her death certificate, recording the cause of death as old age. Grundy's daughter, lawyer Angela Woodruff, became concerned when solicitor Brian Burgess informed her that a will had been made, apparently by her mother, with doubts about its authenticity, but left 386,000 pounds to Shipman. At Burgess's urging, Woodruff went to the police, who began an investigation. Grundy's body was exhumed and found to contain traces of diamorphine, often used for pain control in terminal cancer patients. Shipman claimed that Grundy had been an addict and showed them the comments he had written to that effect in his computerized medical journal. However, examination of his computer showed that they were written after her death. Shipman was arrested on the 7th of September, 1998, and was found to own a brother typewriter of the kind that was used to make the forged will. Prescription for Murder, a 2000 book by journalists Brian Whittle and Gene Ritchie, suggested that Shipman forged the will either because he wanted to be caught because his life was out of control, or because he planned to retire at 55 and leave the UK. The police investigated the other deaths Shipman had certified and investigated 15 specimen cases. They discovered a pattern of his administering of lethal doses of diamorphine, signing patients' death certificates, and then falsifying medical records to indicate that they had been in poor health. In 2003, David Spiegelhalter suggested that, quote, statistical monitoring could have led to an alarm being raised at the end of 1996 when there were 67 excess deaths in the females aged over 65 years compared to 119 by 1998, end quote. Shipman's legal representative tried unsuccessfully to have the Grundy case tried separately from the others, as a motive was shown by the alleged forgery of Grundy's will. On January 31st, 2000, after six days of deliberation, the jury found Shipman guilty of 15 counts of murder and one count of forgery. Mr. Justice Forbes subsequently sentenced Shipman to life imprisonment on all 15 counts of murder, with a recommendation that he never be released, to be served concurrently with a sentence of four years for forging Grundy's will. On the 11th of February, 10 days after his conviction, Shipman was struck off by the General Medical Council. Two years later, Home Secretary David Blunkett confirmed the judge's whole life tariff. Just months before, British government ministers lost their power to set a minimum term for prisoners. 
While authorities could have brought many additional charges, they concluded that a fair hearing would be impossible in view of the enormous publicity surrounding the original trial. Furthermore, the 15 life sentences already handed down rendered further litigation unnecessary. Shipman became friends with fellow serial killer Peter Moore while incarcerated. Shipman consistently denied his guilt, disputing the scientific evidence against him. He never made any public statements about his actions, and Shipman's wife, Primrose, steadfastly maintained her husband's innocence even after his conviction. Shipman is the only doctor in the history of British medicine found guilty of murdering his patients. John Bodkin Adams was charged in 1957 with murdering a patient amid rumors he had killed dozens more over a 10-year period and possibly provided the role model for Shipman. However, he was acquitted. Historian Pamela Cullen has argued that because of Adams' acquittal, there was no impetus to examine the flaws in the British legal system until the Shipman case. Shipman was only convicted of killing 15 elderly women. However, the Shipman inquiry carried out in 2004 concluded that he had killed at least 218 patients. Most believe the figure to be around 250. Shipman hanged himself in his cell at Her Majesty's Prison in Wakefield at 6.20 a.m. on January 13, 2004, the eve of his 58th birthday, and was pronounced dead at 8.10 a.m. A statement from Her Majesty's Prison Service indicated that he had hanged himself from the window bars of his cell using bedsheets. After Shipman's death, his body was taken to the mortuary at the Medico Legal Center for a post-mortem examination. West Yorkshire Coroner David Hinchliffe eventually released the body to the family after an inquest was opened shortly after. Some of the victims' families said that they felt cheated, as Shipman's suicide mean they would never have the satisfaction of his confession, nor the answers as to why he committed his crimes. Home Secretary David Blunkett said celebration was tempting. Quote, you wake up and you receive a call telling you Shipman has topped himself, and you just think, is it too early to open a bottle? And then you discover that everybody's very upset that he's done it. End quote. Thanks for listening to this episode of Podtoons. Podtoons is updated on a weekly basis, so be sure to tune in next week. All sources and references used in this episode will be linked in the description.